That's the thing that's all knowing, all seeing. I don't know what I want. I'm just a flawed human being that's stumbling through life, trying to make my way. It should be the one telling me what to search for. Welcome to Tech Talks, the podcast brought to you by Nash Squared and hosted by myself, David Savage, that's been bringing you the latest thinking from technology leaders for over eight years. Joining me on today's episode is Amber. How are you? I'm okay. Yeah, I'm all good. How are you? Yeah, good, good. First thing, um, and this is a slight detour from our usual content, but injury update? Injury update. Well, uh, so yesterday, Dave, I ran the Brighton Marathon. Oh, I know. Um, so basically, I hadn't run for, I think it was about f- uh, probably just coming up to five and a half weeks. And <laughs> the stubbornness within me was like, I can't miss it. Um, I'm going to go and just try and give it a go and see how I get on. And I don't know if it was like stubborn or stupid, to be completely honest. But I was like, I'm going to give it a go. And if I have to stop, I have to stop. And yeah, I, I managed to get round just about. Here's a question. If you were training for a marathon and you asked ChatGPT how to go about it, do you think it would tell you to just run the, the another marathon off the cuff on zero training? Ah, uh, no, absolutely not. <laughs> I don't think anyone would say that, to be completely honest. Who are you running for? I'm running for Mind. Send us the link to sponsor. Mm. We will put oh, it in the show yes. notes. I need to still sponsor, and I will do, but send us the link to sponsor. We'll stick it in the show notes. And yeah, uh, good oh, luck amazing. when the London Marathon comes around in a few weeks' time. It's It's got to be not long at all, right? Yeah, it's literally, it was three weeks yesterday. So yeah, I need there to recover, basically. But yeah, I will do. Thank you. Yeah, regular listeners, support Amber. She's running the London Marathon for mind. Right. We teased at the fact that we're talking about generative AI and ChatGPT. Uh, we are doing that in two interviews, two fairly bulky interviews, I'll be honest with you. So you'll hear less from us today to get through these. But I think that you'll find these particularly interesting. We've got Dimitri Shapiro, uh, the CEO of Koji. And then we're talking to Anthony Dayton, who is the Chief Product Officer of Tamer. Those are our two interviews. We're going to start with the CEO of Koji. We'll be back very shortly. So I'm chatting to Dimitri. Dimitri, you're the CEO of Koji. Uh, you're joining us from your backyard in San Diego, which frankly looks awful. So <laughs> um, thanks for taking the time to chat to me. I'm excited to, to be here. Before we get into anything else, do you want to just give us a, a quick introduction to yourself and, and your role at Koji? Sure. Uh, these days, I describe myself as an old nerd. Uh, I, I got on the internet in 1994 when I was working at a big Japanese company called Fujitsu. And from 95 to 99, I built out the Fujitsu web team and then went on to build uh, three venture-backed companies. Uh, one, an <clears throat> enterprise software cybersecurity company called Aconics, <clears throat> raised $34 million for that in venture capital. Then I built a competitor to YouTube, one of the major ones called VEO, V-E-O-H, uh, Networks, raised $70 million for that, and then went and joined MySpace as chief technology officer of MySpace Music, then went on to spend four years at Google uh, on the product side on the main campus, and then left in 2016 to start Koji. Uh, which is a platform that allows software developers to build applications uh, much more rapidly than sort of in any other way possible. So there are software developers that build new apps in 
a day to a couple of days rather than you know months or years. And so today we have over 300 of these apps that have been built on the platform that are primarily being used by social media creators and influencers to engage their audiences in many different ways, uh, sort of perform commerce and, and uh, fan engagement and multimedia crowdsourcing. Again, there's like over 300 of these mini apps. Uh, people are curious, they can just go to kojai.to, kojai.to, and they can read about it there. Now, you have made a habit of staying perhaps one step ahead of where the industry is going throughout your career. You mentioned a, a competitor to YouTube. Uh, you worked at MySpace. Um you moved to Google. You've worked at some of those cutting-edge, bleeding-edge businesses. So I suppose it's it, it stands to reason that a lot of people look to you for advice on where the industry might be headed next. <clears throat> that, that certainly does happen uh, quite often, it seems. What are the questions that people tend to ask you at the moment? What What are the pressing questions that people come to you with when it's concerned to you know their their business and and the the external forces that might be impacting on on the decisions that they're making. Mm -hmm. It's a great question. <clears throat> well, there's um these days there's actually a, a broad range of these questions that are coming my way. <clears throat> Excuse me. Some of them are coming from, uh, you know, other techies, people who work at, at Google, Facebook, Apple, etc., who. For, you know, the years that they've been there, some of them have been there, you know, 17, 18, even 20 years that I've talked to recently, who felt that uh, they understood the world and that their worlds were pretty stable. And they kind of went to work and did their thing and, and built these like long lasting careers in these companies. And they were sort of the, the privileged ones that sort of felt like they could commit to a company and stay there for an entire career. You know, that used to be the case, but obviously it's not the case very much these days. But these folks, because they were working at these fan companies, really felt that they had this sort of unique stability that they could sort of build their lives around. And just recently, over the last year, uh, you know, they've sort of faced the harsh reality that many other people have been facing for you know, their entire lives, which is their jobs are no longer stable. There are all these layoffs, for example, that are happening across tech. These things have obviously been happening across other industries for quite some time, but tech seemed sort of immune from it. And, and so they're sort of facing these existential questions of like, how do I go out and live in the regular world? How do I find another job? How do I potentially start a company? I get asked quite often because I built three venture back companies you know, uh, in, in my life. So, so that's a set of questions. Another set of questions concerns artificial intelligence and, and sort of what this new inflection point that we're in kind of means to different types of people in their lives. What are the opportunities to potentially leverage uh, this, this new wave of innovation that we're all sort of witnessing right now? Uh, lots of questions about what this means to the creator economy, which is, again, Koji serves hundreds of thousands of creators that make a living using Koji. And, you know, what, what does, for example, generative artificial intelligence mean for those creators? Will it replace them? Will it replace 
you know, people who write code. So I think there, there seems to be a lot of uh, uncertainty, obviously, and, and, and some fear, but yet also a lot of sort of opportunity, a lot of exuberance for, wow, this, this is another big wave that if you know how to ride it, you can potentially take advantage of it and, and, and end up in a better place. Out of interest, if you had to gauge the general feeling of the industry, you say there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of opportunity, which at the minute is the predominant feeling? Well, I think humans tend to uh, overwhelmingly, if, if there's sort of danger around, tend to focus on the danger rather than the opportunity. In the glass, half full, half uh, empty, uh, it seems that most people tend to focus on the empty rather than the full. Uh, but uh, I think once we have a conversation about, hey, yeah, these are great changes, but it's in great changes that the great opportunities come, I think people generally get excited about. Yeah, What's next? Yeah, so let's 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 address that. What what is the antidote to this? Cuz cuz I think what you're talking about first in particular where people are suddenly, you know, facing layoffs and they're trying to find their place in the world again. How do I find work? That that is inherently intertwined with what's going on at the moment in terms of the way that that the labor market is slowly being re well not even that slowly but being reshaped, right? Mhm. Uh yeah, I mean we What's a way to, to think about this? Uh, I'll give you a quick sort of backstory. When I was pitching venture capitalists in January of 2005 on the idea that I was going to make it easy for anyone to, I called it broadcast video on the internet. This was four months before YouTube launched. This was a new idea then. It never really heard it before. Uh, I got a bunch of objections and I had already raised $34 million for my previous company. So I knew how to talk to VCs. I got access to some of the kind of most prominent VCs in, in Silicon Valley. I sat in front of them and again, sort of gave them this vision of, hey, it's going to be amazing. Everyone's going to be able to broadcast video. They're like, I don't get it. Like, who who would want to broadcast video? Like, who, who, would, who would do that? Maybe some parents would want to share videos of the grandkids with the grandparents. That's not a business. Uh, so that's sort of the first question, like, who would want to do it? And then they said, well, like, even if you could get people to do it, like, who would watch it? Like, who would watch sort of amateur video? Like, it's hard to make good content, you know, like requires sets and, and actors and equipment rental. That's the reason a motion picture costs a hundred million dollars to produce. Like, you can't just like point the camcorder at something and make it interesting. This is before cell phone video. And then finally, they said, like, even if you could do that, like, there's no money in it because like brands are very sensitive about where they want to put their advertisement and therefore they're just not going to put it on at that time they called it garbage content this was sort of before ugc became the known term uh but i always felt that that while i understood their objections and they were right at the time that that they were sort of not necessarily the the way things were going to turn out and that the real thing to do was to try and say here you go and of course we can look at it today and who wants to broadcast video? Everyone. Who watches it? Everyone. And what brands advertise? Every brand. Okay, great. Um, but if you looked at jobs in traditional media, and those were a lot of the people that I was sort of talking to, and again, 2005 to 2010, 
those people felt like their jobs were pretty safe. These were like old businesses that had these really sort of powerful uh, competitive advantages. It was hard to get into media. You couldn't just go start a media company, right? Like all other companies, you can sort of go start. But a media company, well, that was hard to start. To get a new cable channel, you know, cost a half a billion dollars. And if you can even get sort of access to Spectrum. Um, but over time, they found themselves extraordinarily sort of disrupted by anyone being able to produce content, meaning the the supply went up radically by the amount of content that was available because so many more people, amateurs, who then now became professionals, got into the business and started creating content. Um, and I think we're sort of at another one of those inflection points where the supply of sort of knowledge work, the ability for machines, software, to be able to do things, to, to allow humans to do things much faster, or in some cases to do those things even without humans at sort of insane speeds. And, and so these types of dynamics have uh, a chance, well, I think pretty much definite chance of just massively disrupting countless parts of our lives. Uh, and, uh, and and so I think like th those are the interesting things to try to talk about and potentially predict. Of course, predicting these things is extraordinarily difficult. We've certainly never been in a place before where we have such rapid innovation. There's a guy out there named uh, Ray Kurzweil. He's a sort of a famous futurist, uh, brilliant uh, inventor. Uh, he now works at Google uh, on NLP, natural language processing. Uh, there's a documentary about him called Transcendent Man that people can find on you know, Netflix or Amazon, etc. Uh, and in it, he talks about how you know, people don't tend to realize, but information technology accelerates exponentially, not linearly. People think linearly in predicting the future. And, and that generally works. But when it comes to information technology, it, because each new phase of technology is built on the prior phase of technology, and each time technology gets better so we can build faster on it, we are starting to really experience that exponential curve. And I think mm. that is why we're seeing this tremendous number of layoffs that we've seen in these big companies and these big tech companies where they are realizing that their businesses are about to change in a massive, massive way, as is everybody else's business. And they're just taking advantage of, you know, sort of this environment to be able to to uh, make those changes as quickly as possible. So look, where, where natural language processing, and obviously everyone's got a bit crazy about chat GDP in recent weeks, is concerned. And people are kind of going, oh, well, you know, this could be a huge disruptor on jobs and whatever else. I was at a, an event last week where... Uh, someone was like, oh, and it's brilliant. It kind of wrote this pitch for me and they threw this pitch up on screen and it was wildly generic. And I kind of <laughs> sat there and I thought, well, hang on a minute. How actually are people going to use this? Because on the one hand, we were talking about, you know, is, is this going to be kind of um, the death knell for creative or creators? Um, or is, is there still this place that actually, yes, you're going to need a human who can touch it up and put the put the 
human element into the AI because ultimately, otherwise, aren't we going to end up with a whole load of stuff that's quite bland and quite generic? Or is it that it's going to be that the skill is not necessarily touching up what the AI gives you, but understanding how to ask it to create the text for you in the first place? And I think there's a subtle bit there that might kind of lead to some various different skill sets in industry in terms of how you query or how you, I suppose, augment what these tools are able to give us, right? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. so um, ChatGPT and Bard uh, from Google, which is a competitive product that Google just launched. By the way, there are a bunch of others that are out there, uh, are very interesting, uh, relatively new type of technologies that humans can play with, um, you know, known as large language models. Uh, and, and at this moment, they are extraordinarily hyped and you know, quite severely misunderstood. Um, sort of at the heart of them, uh, they are simply uh, statistical models that predict the next word given a prior set of words. Uh, and, and so they're machines that, you know, software that predicts what the next word should be, having read uh, kind of all of the content that was available to it uh, online. Uh, and, uh, these large language models have surprised a lot of people, including the researchers that are working on them, in their ability to feel very human in their responses. Um, and, and that's really powerful that we now have software that we can chat with that feels human. Uh, it, it sort of introduces a whole set of, of questions and sort of known problems now. One of the problems that we have now is that these things, again, do a very good job of, of pretending to be human uh, and therefore convincing humans that they are intelligent. Uh, the only problem is they tend to periodically give very convincing wrong answers. Their predictions are wrong about what the next word would be, or even simple math. Like there's plenty of people out there that are now posting screenshots of talking to ChatGPT asking it to, you know, write papers and pass law exams, you know, law school exams, uh, which it's recently done. Um, but um, uh, not sort of not being able to do <laughs> just very basic arithmetic. So there are those problems that, that need to be fixed. Uh, the question of creativity is also, I think, a really interesting one. I think if you Again, if listeners sort of step back and said, well, like, what is really creativity? Not like, like, what's the dictionary definition of it? But like, how would you delineate what is creative and what is not creative? Uh, and that, I think that's a hard question. Uh, I, I would sort of answer it in a, in a way that, that said that is something being created that's original? But at the same time, then you look back and, and you start to question whether anything that's created is original. Aren't all humans influenced by their prior experience and other humans? I mean, there's the saying, good artists copy, great artists steal, right? We all are influenced by other people that have been creative before. And then we come up with something that's derivative but yet is considered original. And that is exactly what ChatGPT and BART are doing, is they are coming up with things that are original. 
meaning you can't go search for them online and find that exact combination of words put together. Uh, and so certainly they are creative. Now, you were saying that the that the copy you read felt bland uh, and, and potentially uninspired. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, but I would say that's the case about most things that you, <laughs> you find out there. Uh, it's hard to create exceptional content, whether it be in print or audio, video, whatever. Um, and so most things I think that people do are creative, uh, but not sort of so exceptional that these large language models can't do already. Uh, and therefore, there are people now who are using these things to augment their daily work. If you need to write some copy for, you know, whatever it is you're doing, some marketing copy, uh, you could just give ChatGPT some bullet points. And I think it does a really decent job, a solid job of writing really good copy. I mean, good enough to be able to use out and to do business. Could you find some human to do it better? Probably, uh, but finding that human would be actually really, really difficult and getting them to do it. And then you start to say, well, what's the time required to find the human and get them to do it? And how much does that cost versus getting something that's just good enough? I'll give you another example of that that people, I think, certainly talk about these days, which is this company called Canva. Uh, for those that don't know what Canva is, it's sort of like Photoshop. Uh, but instead of being sort of like really hard to use and sophisticated like Photoshop, it's made for sort of much more casual use. You show up and you pick these templates uh, that you can then make a copy of and customize and you're able to very quickly and easily, you know, create graphics and, and video and PowerPoints and all kinds of collaterals that used to require either you to do a lot of work and take a lot of time or required you to go and hire a designer to do. And so it's really disrupted sort of design. And there are people that argue, well, Photoshop is exactly what you need to learn to do because you need to be able to pixel tweak to really get what you want. But then Canva has obviously shown us that most people have no interest in spending more time and effort and, and, and money to be able to get something perfect. Good enough is good enough. And ChatGPT is already good enough other than these inaccuracies. And that's extraordinarily disruptive to anyone who's producing content, whatever kind of content it is. So we've talked a little bit about one example where you talk about kind of companies are using the exponential change that's going on to, to bring about some fairly big changes. We've talked a little bit about how AI might affect a person's role augmenting uh, their activities in a way that allows them to do something that is good enough. But if you had to pick out something else that maybe people have got their eye off the ball on a little bit at the minute, you talked about chat GDP and uh, being hyped. Is there anything that you think is slipping under the radar that's really interesting? Yes. <clears throat> um, so again, these large language models, as they're known, these neural networks, is another term you, you may hear out there. Uh, the way they work is, you know, they're software. So they've got a, a bunch of developers that wrote some software and they've got these algorithms that can take as input a lot of data and then sort of crunch it over and over and over again. It requires a lot of compute power 
These things cost a lot of money to operate, to just be able to go through and process all this data and to train this model. Uh, so the, these models are all built on having access to data. And, uh, you know, for example, companies like OpenAI, which is the company that built ChatGPT, or Google, which, you know, built this thing called BARD, Facebook, etc. Some of these very large companies have access to a tremendous amount of data that they can use to train these models. Um, and how did they get the data? Well, they had to crawl the web to get all the web documents. And then they gave that to, to ChatGPT. And they had to scan a bunch of books. And they had to go and, and, and crawl Reddit to like read all the Reddit comments and give it to them. So these models have been trained on content that was crawled in some way and digitized and formatted so they can input it. Um, but there's still a lot of very important data that is not available to really take these models to the next level where they can really be helpful to us, extraordinarily helpful to us. And that is that they've got no access to what's inside of human beings, what's inside of our minds. There, there is no data set about all of the various states of minds of humans and, and all of these things that make us do what we do and think the way we think. And, 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 you know, uh, and if that data set does not exist, then these AI models can't learn about us. And so when you show up to ChatGPT and you say to it, explain quantum mechanics to me, it doesn't know if you're a physicist or if you're an eight-year-old kid. And so it gives you the lowest common denominator answer. And that's unfortunate because if it didn't know that you were a physicist, it could engage you on a radically deeper level and then give you what you need. Or if it knew that you were an eight-year-old kid, and depending on if you understood your strengths and weaknesses as an eight-year-old kid, then again, it could augment your weaknesses and then build up your strengths. But then the question becomes like, how do we get that data set? How do we index the human mind? And I think that is the next phase of, uh, well, one sort of, lane of the next phase of innovation uh, that I'm really excited about, the sort of the efforts to index individual humans and then humanity itself. And if we can get that data set and then we can feed it into, even again, these large language models, they're, they're built on this relatively new architecture called transformers. This is a type of architecture of these neural networks. Uh, and some architectures are better than others. This transformer architecture is very, very powerful. And so you can give it almost any type of data. Uh, and then it can take that data and make sense out of it. Index it, put it all together, and be able to then take that into account when it's engaging with humanity. And so I think the other thing that people are, are uh, missing here is that this interface to this AI, now we have this like, all-knowing, all-seeing entity that we can engage with. Our interface to it as a command prompt is a text box. It's like DOS. For those of us old enough to remember DOS before we got Windows, this is the world that we live in. It's 
we have to we have to talk to this artificial intelligence and somehow in words express what it is we're looking for. That's really hard. How do you express what you want in, in words other than sort of superficial, simple things? Or how many words would you need to say to really be able to express it? That's not the way that this thing should work. The right way for this thing to work is that's the thing that's all-knowing, all-seeing. I don't know what I want. I'm just a flawed human being that's stumbling through life, trying to make my way. It should be the one telling me what to search for. It should be the one saying, hey, dummy, don't you know that there is this new stuff here that you can use? You want me to just bring it to you? And I'd say, yeah, thanks. Thanks for thinking about that. that that's the right way to approach it. This other way of like, I've got to query it. Nah, that's kind of silly, I think. So I think that's the next phase. We don't type things to ChatGPT. ChatGPT shows up, sends us a notification saying, I brought you a goodie. For those people that have like cats, cats periodically will go out hunting and bring you like a little mouse snack at your doorstep. Hopefully it doesn't bring you any dead animals. But, but, the, but the feeling is the same. Something really loves you and it wants to come and, and bring you a goodie. And when we get to that point, I think that's when the world really changes. It's been fascinating talking to you. I hope that uh, I hope the chat GDP and these models evolve to not not be like my cats. Maybe like your cats. My cat would yeah. be worms. Worms. Wow. Yeah, she's she's she's. I think she's at the lower. She's maybe the equivalent of the eight year old <laughs> rather than the the physicist. But look, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, and um, thanks for taking some time this morning. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much. Great to talk to you. Right. A couple of stats. Straight out of the, the Nash Squared Digital Leadership Survey, nine in 10 digital leaders believe that change is happening quicker than ever. Two thirds of leaders think that big data and analytics are going to be the differentiators, but only one in five, or sorry, yes, one in five, that is, feel that they are going to be effective in generating uh, revenue from those insights that they're not well placed because of their data. Fascinating, really. Um, I don't think anyone would argue with the thing with, with the fact that the world is moving quicker than ever. Amber, what did you think listening to Dimitri? I think he, I mean, you made a really interesting point there as well, and I will come on to um, his interview, but it is kind of the buzzword at the moment, isn't it? It seems so yep. popular, but I think he made a really good point of that it's kind of, new technology but it's not in a sense of like it has been around for some time but obviously it just seems to be yeah the sort of the the thing in the moment right now doesn't it which I, I found really interesting because I didn't know that I thought this was all new and also I thought there was almost like just it sounds really stupid I thought there was almost like just one platform um but as you said there's loads of alternatives uh, Bard as well. and yeah 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 Being yeah, so, into, yeah generative you know, AI as a, as a thing is more than just open AI yeah, that, that's the thing. And I think it's one of the things of, um, I mean, we've sort of said this in the past that, um, yeah, like a lot of this kind of sometimes goes over my head a little bit. I feel like I say that in nearly every interview at the moment. But um, yeah, there's just lots of sort of different variations to it. And like I said, there's lots of alternatives. Yeah. And I think when you start to look into it, there's so much there. Like it's, it is kind of, um, uh, I suppose, kind of scary in a sense of like, mm -hmm. like I said, that it is sort of rapidly changing. But an interesting thing, obviously, from our um, digital leadership report is that not many people think it's going to be effective in producing revenue or creating revenue, which, uh, yeah, I think that's really interesting. It's like there's all these gimmicks. I, I think that has more to do with how they view their data and thinking that they can't extract the value from it. Because 
two two thirds think it is the thing that is the differentiator, but they just don't think that they're play in a position to actually take advantage. Mm. I think it depends in what business and what industry you're in, because I think some. I don't know, some things I feel like you sort of need that human element and you need that human touch, don't you? Um, but is, isn't that the point that Dimitri makes? I mean, when he talks about Canva and he talks about it's just enough, it's good enough, mm. it's that it's that thing that sits alongside you augmenting your job that makes life just a bit easier. And and, and yeah, absolutely. We I think... I think this is the crux of it. We will always need people. And the, the, the Canva versus Photoshop story that he tells, or not a story, but kind of way of, way of describing this is really good. You're always going to need people who are experts, but perhaps not all the time. Day to day, Canva beats Photoshop. You don't need a, a, a ridiculously talented editor for day-to-day -day work. You just need something that gets you by. But every now and then, we are going to need that expert level, right? Problem is, is if in five years, are we going to find that there's fewer and fewer of these people around and therefore they're going to become extortionate? Um, and whilst, you know, there's going to be fewer opportunities for them, so they're, you know, getting hold of them, it's going to be, it's going to be like a real talent shortage uh, supply-demand piece. But we will want those experts occasionally who go beyond just the just enough scenario. It's an interesting point as well, because I've always seen it as like a replacement almost, like you say, but actually they can kind of work hand in hand, can't they? So it's not a case of you either use this or you have that kind of human element, as I mentioned. It's actually they can sort of work in sort of tandem together. And then that's probably when you get the most effective results, yeah. really, isn't it? Well, it's like it can write code. But mm. It might not write beautiful code. And, and, and a developer might look at it and go, Okay, that's a good, that's a good starting point. But actually, I'd I'd like it to just do this, this, and this. So it does the legwork, and then the person comes in and tweaks to be like right. Or if it's writing copy from a marketing point of view, it might be quite bland copy. But then you can tune it up to be mm. that little bit more. And in that sense, it's like it's 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 your own personal assistant rather than yeah. replacement. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. Like, puts the foundation in place, like you said, and then you can sort of do the work from there. But, yeah, do, do you know what? I hadn't really ever looked at it in that way. I was kind of like, right, use this or you do it yourself kind of thing. But actually, that's, yeah, I mean, that's so handy. You think how much time that will cut out if, obviously, they can sort of do the groundwork and then you could just yeah. go in and obviously make it a lot better. Yeah. What if you wanted it to, to write you some interview notes for a candidate and you wanted to mm. kind of get them some information on a, on a, on a company? then you can easily get it to do that and you might read it and edit it because you go, well, actually that's inaccurate, but it's pretty close. And actually that that saves me a lot of time. I don't have to write it from scratch, but it, it, it's something that I can send out once I've kind of proofread it and made sure it's right mm. or a job spec for that matter or something. Then in that I sense, think, it's great. Yeah, no, I, I think a lot of people probably have the same idea as what I do though, is that they take a lot of it as gospel. So they kind of take it that, right, this... Um, you know, this, it's going to sort of put all the interview notes together for me. And then they probably don't proofread it and they just take it as this is, you know, 100% accurate and I'm just going to send it out. And then they mm. probably don't actually look through it and then find out that some of it is inaccurate. So, But Dimitri talks about the fact that, you know, it can get, it can write you a college essay, but it can get basic arithmetic wrong. So you've got, you've got to be careful. Yeah, no, no, definitely. 
Look, the second interview of, of today's episode, Anthony Zayton, Chief Product Officer at uh, Tamer. Tamer are a company that are basically creating um, automated tools for, for cleaning dirty enterprise data. So he thinks that the next 10 years is going to be about improving the quality of our data. And it kind of goes hand in hand with the first interview because this stuff is only really going to work and it's not going to make the simple mistakes or it's going to be better, kind of more applicable if it if it's based on really solid data. And I think it's really interesting that in the news at the minute as well, if you open up the papers over the last couple of days, the UK watchdog is now warning chatbot developers about data protection laws because a lot of tech companies are basically going and scraping huge amounts of data off the internet and to use as underlying training data effectively. And it's unfiltered for these um, for these generative AI um, models. Um that's why some people are saying we should pause this for six months because we don't know what the what the consequences of that might be. Absolutely, the wrong way to go about this is going to be scraping data off the internet that's unfiltered. Mm. Absolutely, the right way about going about this is cleaning up enterprise data to make sure that um, it, it's really usable. And I think that the role of the chief data officer, how that works in enterprise, all leads into or builds on what Dimitri's been saying before. Mm. But then I don't understand how... Um they can say let's just kind of part this for six months do you know what I mean like I don't I think they're saying that we should we it's really hard but we should hit the pause button well look we all know the unintended consequences of technology you know we've let that we've we've opened Pandora's box with social media for example 10 years ago Mm. and now we're kind of going is social media good or bad or if we if we if we thought about it again if we could start over would we do things differently and we're always quick to adopt and then once it's out there it's very difficult to regulate and to um, put processes in place and I think all they're saying is hang on a minute this you know Dimitri talks about this being you know the exponential curve moment if if that's about to happen and it's going to be really disruptive then surely hitting the pause button is the right thing to do yeah no I do agree I think we should hit the pause button I just think it's one of those things that like you said we need to sort of slow down and then maybe assess actually where this sort of information or this data is coming from and if it's going to have kind of long-term effects um yeah. but I, I don't know it's just sort of easier said than done almost do you know what i mean i think because people have like are using it now it's kind of in cycle it's you know it's popular like we said it's kind of a trendy sort of buzzword at the moment and everybody yeah. seems to be jumping on it just to give it a go i personally haven't given it a go but i feel like i know lots of people that have just sort of kind of giving it a while just to sort of see what it's like or just you know out of interest just because they're hearing so much about it whether or not they yeah. actually need this information they're just asking it like random questions just to try to sort of see how effective it is but um yeah like say i think it's like everything we, we sort of speak about on here you don't know what's kind of going on in the background almost so we've spoken a fair o- although bit- now now you do now you know it's just taking a whole load of data and guessing well yeah <laughs> guessing yeah. what the next word should be <laughs> and it kind of takes the mystique out of it like oh okay <laughs> yeah it's not as clever as we like we um we first thought it was but i mean no. we spoke like a fair bit like about sort of scams and stuff on here recently haven't we i know that's been sort yep. of a, a couple of interviews where that's kind of popped up and i guess yeah you're just sort of opening a can of worms really aren't you so yeah, if it's just wiping things off the internet, there's, I mean, it's going to surely be sort of side effects and things, you know, repercussions off the back of that. So yeah, putting the brakes on, I don't think it's a bad idea. I just don't know how easy it's going to be. Putting the brakes on, absolutely, and cleaning up the data. And so with that, we'll play the second interview. Uh, have a listen to Anthony's thoughts. Amber, thank you for your time today. Thanks, Dave. So today I'm joined by Anthony Dayton, 
Joining us from Boston, a snowy Boston, you're the Chief Product Officer at Tamer. How are you this morning? Uh, wonderful. It's a, a beautiful snowy day in Boston. And I have to say, I am appreciative of you giving up your time because it's Martin Luther King Junior Day in the States and therefore a national holiday. Blue Monday, as far as the UK is concerned. So I, I think that you have you have framed the day far better than we have. <laughs> yes, uh, excellent. No, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, before we get into anything else, do you want to tell us a little bit about who Tamer are? Sure. So uh, Tamer is a software company. Uh, we're based in Harvard Square, Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, commercializing technology that came out of academic research uh, by Mike Stonebreaker at uh, MIT. Um, and the, the task that we've taken on is cleaning the world's uh, enterprise, dirty enterprise data. Uh, which is a, a massive uh, challenge. And the original academic research was around the uh, development and application of machine learning to that task. So, uh, you know, uh, we are building essentially a, a self-driving car for cleaning enterprise data, a machine-driven approach to cleaning and normalizing uh, enterprise data, which is a massive challenge and a big opportunity. Just forgive the really ignorant question. How different is that to other offerings out there where it comes to data consultancy? Sure. So, you know, the best in-class solution to this problem, uh, if you don't use a machine, uh, is uh, Microsoft Excel and VLOOKUP, meaning you're going to hand people the data and they're manually going to resolve uh, data quality problems um, and literally going row by row. In many cases, we see organizations standing up teams of people uh, whose only job is to literally go record by record through a data set and try to, you know, fix phone numbers or resolve email addresses or, you know, look for look for company names that are the same, but, you know, spelled slightly differently. And, uh, and it's a it's a horribly manual task. And in that sense, um, not an enormous surprise. Uh, you know, the idea of um, deploying labor to, to do these sorts of tasks is, uh, you know, that's typically how companies come at this problem. Um, or they just give up and they, they hand the, the, the dirty data to decision makers and say, well, you know, you figure it out. Um, the idea here is what if we could train a machine to take on those sort of repetitive you know, uh, difficult tasks of looking at the quality of the data and fixing it, um, you know, bringing together data that's really duplicative, resolving um, and normalizing things like addresses and phone numbers and things that we commonly would expect to see in a different way. Um, what if we could train a machine to do that? And then we could just hand that work to a machine. And the good part about machines is they don't take copy breaks. They don't get, you know, MLK day off. Uh, they don't need to sleep. Uh, and they, and more in a more practical sense, they scale very nicely. So adding more capacity into the into the machine is actually relatively easy, um, and especially in the cloud, because now uh, with cloud technology, the idea that you'd have a thousand machines working on your behalf to clean and normalize your enterprise data, that's actually quite feasible. Um, even five or ten years ago, the idea of doing that would seem a bit like science fiction. Now it's Quite pedestrian, quite quite. Uh, you know, you can you can do that quite easily. So, what's your what's your career path that has led you to this position? Because you've been there for nearly three years, as we said, chief product officer. 
how come you decided to join Tamer and, and, and what led you to that point? Sure. So I've worked in the space of enterprise data my almost my entire career. Um, and uh, I began in the data creation space. Uh, I worked at a company called Siebel Systems, uh, which is an early competitor to Salesforce uh, doing CRM. Um, and we generated lots of data. Uh, and then I saw an opportunity as, as organizations digitized their processes, generated lots of data to make it easy for business professionals to analyze and make meaning of that data. And so I moved uh, into the analytics space, worked for a company called Click uh, for many years, started out of Sweden. Um, and then uh, more recently for a company called Salonis, started out of Germany, uh, both of which really helped organizations take the enterprise data they'd created and make meaning of it, like help people create bar charts and line charts and process visualizations out of that data. The common trend that I saw uh, before joining Tamer was that as much as we had significantly improved the tooling for giving people the, uh, giving users inside an organization the ability to visualize and analyze that data, we made it much easier for people to create bar charts and line charts and visualizations of their data. In most cases, they didn't believe or trust the data behind those visualizations. So they would look at a visualization, they'd say, oh, this is beautiful, but how come there's three copies of Microsoft? I don't know there's only one of them. Or that phone number is clearly wrong. It's not even, doesn't even have the right number of digits. Or did you include the data you know, from uh, the ABC division? You didn't include ABC, did oh, I can't use it if it doesn't have the data from ABC. So they were making complaints not about the consumption of the data, but on the data itself. And when you dig into it and think about, well, okay, how do we solve that problem? That's a massive challenge. It's a big, big problem. Um, and, uh, you know, therefore, I think uh, an interesting challenge and opportunity. So, you know, I think the, the next 10 years of the data space are going to be about improving the quality of data as opposed to giving people new ways of analyzing it. Let's dive into that problem for a second. When we say, do people trust the data? Who, who are we talking about? Which which people are we talking about? Marketing, HR, are we talking, you know, what are the demographics within an organization where you tend to find that there is maybe not resistance, but suspicion about what's being presented? I hate to say it, but I think it's every group within the enterprise. Uh, so uh, any group within the enterprise is by its nature data driven. So you think about something like HR or that, you know, that's all about feelings and culture. And no, it's about data. Like even something as squishy as uh, data often relies on surveys, uh, surveys of employees. And then of course you have a survey you've done about your employees and it doesn't map up against the, the number of employees you have in the company and you have contractors and you include them and how do you resolve those? You know, like all of a sudden you got 15 sources of data to look at what might feel like a softer problem, like I use the example of culture. Um, but obviously in places like sales and marketing, these are typically very data-driven uh, functions inside an organization. Uh, every executive is asking for demanding a dashboard for them to analyze the key metrics that matter in their business. Finance is an entirely data-driven organization looking at you know the, uh, the accounts and uh, cash flows and things like that. Um, so, you know, um, the 
the core of every business is the data that they use to manage that business um, and giving uh, making you know making sure that data is of the, of the best quality possible um, you know drives bottom line results to whatever the function is inside that organization you obviously rightly point out that data is at the heart of everything that a lot of organizations do now you you sent over some some overhyped trends that you would like to call out in in 2023 and I, I suppose one of these I, I would probably like to quickly dwell on um, and that is this idea that the chief analytics officer perhaps is an overhyped trend what do you mean by that because getting that leadership right at the top surely is a key component to solving some of those problems that you described a moment ago I think it's uh, well exactly um and the chief data officer is or really the pointy tip of the spear of this change. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, historically, I think chief data officers have been viewed as a role, a technology role. Um, they're responsible for the organization and management of a set of technology. And I think in that sense, I think we've come to the end of what can reasonably be achieved with a technology-led chief data officer. And I think that the shift you're gonna see this year and into the future is the role of the chief uh, data officer, CDO, shifting from a technically-led role to a business-led role, to really focusing around what are the decisions that need to be made as an organization and how do I empower people with the right information, the best, highest quality, clean, curated, continuously updated data to help drive those decisions. Um, that's a fairly different role. So if I said this in a very snarky way, uh, you could have viewed the chief data officer in the past as saying, look, I'm going to deploy a bunch of technology and put it in front of my business people or my users. And if they use it, great. If they don't, you know what, I did my job. And I, and I think uh, CDOs today or, or, or you know, good CTOs recognize that's not sufficient, that what they need to do is partner deeply and tightly with the business people that are using that data for making decisions. And in a sense, independent of technology, answer the question, do you have the right data to make the decisions that you need to from a business perspective? And do you believe and trust that data? It's like, I might've given you the data, but if it's all junk, it doesn't matter. Do you believe and trust that data? And if you can get CDOs can focus on, on that sort of latter half of the problem, uh, they're going to be very successful. But I do think it's a big shift uh, in the role. You talk a lot about believing and trusting in the data. There are obviously a lot of tools that organizations can buy off the shelf, plug into their, into their organization. Um, you talk there on this list again about no-code AI and the idea that you can just use my AI and your problems will be solved. I suppose that is only going to compound this problem of people not trusting data and, if anything, will reverse the process of democratization because, yeah, it's freely available, but the explainability goes out the window. Exactly right. Um, <clears throat> The, the challenge when you take uh, an AI-only or machine learning-only approach to this problem uh, is that people don't trust the results. You throw it into a black box, some data comes out. It's not clear to people uh, whether that data, uh, how the sort of, you know, how the black box works, how did it get to this answer? 
Um, so the core intellectual property behind uh, Tamer was this idea of human guided, supported by machine learning. And the, the, I think the right way to think about this is how do you scale the human endeavor? So humans are very good at many of these tasks. Humans are very good at many tasks, which is you know uh, why we are where we are. Uh, but the challenge with people, with, with humans, is that they don't scale particularly well. And the, the wonderful thing about uh, technology and machine learning in particular is that it can scale very effectively. In particular, it can scale because we now have access to cloud technology, which allows us to highly parallelize these operations and run them at that massive scale. But the, uh, the, the combination is very powerful. So if you can get a human to guide the machine to the right answer, but then you use the machine as an augmentation technology to scale that, that work, um, that's the really powerful one to punch. Um, and so uh, and, and maybe to back up a step, there have been people that have argued that machines are taking over the world that there will be no work for people in the, in the future, that, uh, you, know, you know, between, uh, you know, uh, chat GPT and open AI, we're just gonna, we're just gonna replace people uh, with, um, uh, with computers. And I think this is a sort of fundamentally uh, misunderstands the role that AI and machine learning play in, uh, in our lives which is not as a replacement for our unique human capabilities, but to remove the long tail of drudgery that gets in the way and focus people around the places where people are uh, uniquely capable uh, of, of doing work. Um, you know, I, I've yet to meet somebody that, that gets excited about a data project where they've been asked to clean up enterprise data record by record, right? Like no one's signing up for that job. But to be the expert that provides the guidance to the machine to know what's quality data and what's low quality data, uh, that's very empowering. And if you're the person responsible for that, you trust and believe in those results and they're scaled by the machine, that's really exciting. A few years ago, people would talk about um, it, it, it could take two or three years to build um, a data machine at enterprise level and get real results from it. Is that still the case? Or is even if that's not the case, is that still the perception? It's definitely the perception. The perception is that these are long running and difficult uh, jobs. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, we should sort of budget for them accordingly. Uh, I think it's no longer true uh, and uh, the, the, there's sort of two big reasons for that. So, so the first we talked a little bit about is that you know, utilizing um, cloud technology, uh, the availability of scaled resources of, of enough tech, of enough um, compute to, to be very technical for a second, uh, to do these jobs you know, quickly, uh, it's just never been easier to deploy massive volumes of compute and, at these problems. So um so running this stuff natively on the cloud means that for the first time you can take a process parallelize it across thousands of machines and execute it extremely quickly um so so that's sort of the the first reason uh that this can 
finally be done uh, quickly. The second um, is that we can package all of the necessary elements of improving enterprise data together. We use this term a data product. So we package this together as a, as a fully contained application that solves a data problem and we call them a data product. So you can imagine, for example, a data product, uh, take uh, investment management. So you're an asset manager, you have uh, a large amount of data about the investment universe, the potential investments you could make. But each of those data sets uh, from Bloomberg and PitchBook and internal sources and data you got from LinkedIn, each of those is contained in its own database. To knit that together would be extremely time consuming and difficult. But we can build a data product that does just that. So it contains the necessary data transformations, movement, machine learning, all of the rules associated with bringing that data together, packaged as a data product. And you just feed your data in and out the back comes a table of your investable universe showing you where all that data came from and putting it in front of your, in this case, investment provider. You can do that for investors, uh, as I described. Maybe you also do it in the retail space for sales across stores, or you can do it uh, in the you know, uh, government space and look at uh, travelers coming into your airports uh, as we do. Um, so you know, these are all uh, essentially at the core, the same technical problem, um, but, um, but applied in different ways. So again, two big reasons this can be much faster. Cloud technology allows for massive scale, and the packaging of these capabilities into defined data products makes them easy to deploy. I suppose it begs the question, does it does it change the level of sponsorship needed within an organization? We used to talk about, you know, you, you had to have the ear of the CEO. You know, you had various other departments who might be looking at the amount of spend that would be going on building that machine who might go, well, hang on a minute, all this resource going going here, that's taking away from my budget. Does it mean that there can be different advocates within an organization? And does it also, I suppose, mean that organizations can look differently and go, well, actually, we do want to invest in data and the outcomes that data can can provide to us, but we can do it differently to perhaps the way that we were told we were having to do it again two or three years ago. Absolutely. I mean, in the past, to build one of these projects meant that it was a massive capital investment. You needed to procure, manage a large infrastructure um, for for doing this. And you you heard this referred to as, you know, we're going to build a massive data lake or, you know, we're going to, and these are big capital investments that, um, you know, to your point, required fairly senior sign-off because they were large CapEx uh, investments. What the cloud has done is turned all of that into OpEx and made it much easier to link the value you're getting to the money you're spending. So you, you should expect to see a, you know, a 10x return on these uh, uh, operational expenses, meaning you should get 10 times the value out for what you're spending in. And you shouldn't need to spend a large amount up front because in the, in the cloud, you can have access to these resources and then you can throw them away. So when I talk about, you know, you have a thousand machines working on your behalf, you can have a thousand machines working on your behalf for an hour. You don't own those machines. 
do you pay for them for an hour and you stop paying for them right that's the that's the the uh, magic of cloud technology um and so all of a sudden you turn what would have been a very expensive time consuming difficult project which to your point requires you know ceo sponsorship and a, a large organizational uh, commitment to something that can be run and deployed quickly by you know largely by anyone the, the way i would think about sponsorship in the enterprise for these types of things who's the business owner of that data who cares about that data who wants to make decisions with it because almost certainly that person has the right reports and analysis and dashboards but they don't believe the data behind those and if that person could then sponsor improving the quality of the data and use a packaged application a data product leveraging machine learning okay that gets interesting by the way i think that's also a great opportunity to turn that around and share that with your executive leadership so nothing gets a ceo more excited than saying hey we used to have crappy data and now we have really good data and here's a bunch of decisions we've made better because we have better data versus i need a big capital you know expenditure to go build a you know a bunch of you know a bunch of stuff like no like go show me you solve the problem so look as a last question as a last point to lead to leave this on rather and i appreciate this is a very broad question that's open to interpretation and it's very difficult to go ah oh, hey here's a coverall term for enterprise but we are talking about enterprise very broadly what question should an enterprise organization ask itself if it is thinking about going down the route of investing to try and extract greater value from the data yeah i would think about um where do we have data trapped in silos so um uh i will give you an equally broad answer uh there's a a concept in software development called conway's law um and the idea behind conway's law is that software reflects the organization that built it so if you organize your software development team into a front end team and a back end team then you get a front end piece of code and a back end piece of code and the, and the problem the challenge in that development process is getting the front end team to talk to the back end team equally it's the problem is trying to get the front end code to talk to the back end code um so this is sort of a well understood uh sort of thing in software development i believe there's an equally valid uh construct in data which is data reflects the organization that generated it so if you've organized your business by geography then you will have silos of data by geography if you've organized yourself by product line you will have silos of data by product line by the way many organizations do both <laughs> they organize by geo and by uh, product line and as a consequence they have silos uh, by both Uh, if you've um if you organize your, your business by uh data system so you have multiple instances of sap or multiple instances of salesforce you will have silos of data by that system and the point being that the data of the organization reflects the way it was organized and the way it's created um and uh and so you ask the question how do i identify opportunity I would look for places where we the organization structure is interrupting decision making and therefore the silos of data are not enabling or or in uh, that correct uh, decision making um and where we could cut across those silos and actually make better decisions uh, as an organization 
Look, Anthony, I really want to to thank you for your time today. Uh, as we said, it's a, it's a public holiday, so I really, really am very grateful of you taking some time to sit down with us this morning. Um, I hope you get a chance to go out and enjoy the snowfall that you've got outside and, and have some time to relax. But thank you for helping unpackage what is a, a very complex area. Uh, an absolute pleasure, and uh, uh, thanks for your time. Oh.